Father God, we're so thankful to you for who you are. For the fact that you, the great God of all creation, who created everything by the word of your power, you care for us. That you look upon man, though we be but dust, and you care about our concerns. You care for us. You love us. To the point where you sent your only son to die on the cross for our sins so that when we believe we might be saved. So that we could be adopted into your family so that when we sing the lyrics, child of heaven, canst thou repine? Can, can we complain? Our response is a resounding no. We cannot complain because of who you are, because of your great glory. We pray, Lord, that as we open up your word, as we hear from it, that you would magnify yourself, that you would bring great glory and honor to your name, that you would help us to be enraptured by your glory. Father, we pray that you would honor yourself as we study your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. As we place the finishing touches on our building, it's only appropriate for us to, ex- to, to extend our thanks to the people who uh, have allowed for it to happen, and, it's only, and also to God as well. He is the one who enabled for us to have the resources in order to put these finishing touches on our building. He's given us the people with the technical skill. He's given us people who have uh, the uh, finances to help us complete our project. However... As we settle in to this new building and as we start thinking about how we're going to do ministry, the question that many of us seem to have is what can we do in order to grow our church so that we can have an impact on our community? And this is a great question. It's something that we really need to pay attention to because after all, any organization, any secular organization worth its salt is going to ask itself, how can we improve in order to grow, in order to be better? And if we, being the church, are lights of the gospel to our community, how much more then should we be asking the question, what can we do to improve and to grow our church so that we can have the impact that we want to have on our community? Over the last three weeks, our church has gone through uh, our, our uh, mission statement, our vision statement, our values. We've been reminded of those things by Pastor Henry. Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. Our vision is to be a training center, to train up disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ so that they can be useful here in the body, but also so that they can go out and they can go proclaim the gospel elsewhere so that they can be a force for the gospel in the world. And also we reviewed our values as well. Our values are centered on Jesus Christ, on his word, on his family. And on servants. And so we've been reminded of who we are and why we exist. And so naturally, we ought to be thinking about how our mission, our vision, and our values translate into action. God certainly is in the process of building his church. But that doesn't mean that we just sit back and say, okay, God, it's up to you. You do it. No, we bear responsibility as well. But at the same time, this is also where churches, not just SF Bible, but other churches as well, can fail. Because we're thinking about how can we be successful, and then we try and bring in other things to help us reach our goal to be successful. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is what standards will we use in order to determine how we as a church are going to be successful? Are we going to invest in church growth resources so that we can see how we can bring in more visitors? Are we going to treat our members as if they are some sort of uh, source of revenue for this church? Are we going to create a slew of ministries that we cannot hope to staff in the long haul in order to target the people in our community so that they'll want to come into our doors just because we have some service to offer to them? Or an even tougher evaluation question for us is how can we how can we apply standards of success to our own personal lives? 
What criteria are we using to determine whether we're successful or not? Can we consider ourselves successful if we bring home X amount of dollars every year? Or if we own a house? If our kids are well-behaved, they get good grades, and they're on track to attend a prestigious university? If we can travel wherever we want, whenever we want? If we're well-regarded in our company and are on the fast track to management? Or if our grades and our school allow for us to go to the grad school of our choice or perhaps even be hired by the company of our dreams? These are questions that we have to ask ourselves. What is success? And so, as you've probably already figured out by now, uh, the, our, tonight, uh, I mean, t- this morning, what we're going to be looking at is biblical success. And our goal is to recover a biblical view of success. Sure, we might have an understanding of what being successful looks like from the world's perspective, but does our definition of success match up? Does it line up with God's definition of success? So we're going to be looking at a couple of texts this morning, our, the, but the main text that we're going to be using to kind of go off to the other text is going to be Matthew uh, chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. And as you're turning there, this is going to be our focus this morning. We're going to examine what defines biblical success in God's eyes. And in so doing, we are going to observe two facets of faithfulness that explain biblical success in God's eyes so that we might examine ourselves to see if we are living successfully according to God. Two facets of faithfulness that explain biblical success in God's eyes. The word of God reads, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one... Also, who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As we look at this first point, uh, um, or uh, as we come to our first point, what we see here is that the first facet of faithfulness that explains biblical success is a faithfulness in our worship. A faithfulness in our worship. Now, the context of Matthew 25 is um, is Jesus' Olivet Discourse. 
Basically, he's teaching his disciples while he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. And this starts back in Matthew chapter 24. And it ends here later in Matthew 25. And the content of his message as he's preaching to his disciples is his second coming. The coming of his kingdom. And he's telling parables, earthly stories with a heavenly or the spiritual meaning in order to explain to them what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. And so the parable previous to this is the parable of the ten virgins. And if you're familiar with that story, you'll remember that you have ten virgins. They're waiting for the bridegroom to come. And it's nighttime. Five of them have have lamps and they have oil. So they're prepared. They're ready. They're waiting for the bridegroom to come. But the other five, they weren't prepared. And so they go off and try and get some more oil for their lamps. And while they're going off to go get oil for their lamps, the bridegroom comes and leaves them behind. Essentially what he's, essentially what Jesus is trying to illustrate here is that you have no idea when the kingdom of God is coming. And so therefore you need to be ready. You should be found ready. And so here in, in, in verse 14, he elaborates a little bit more on this. And he's talking about what it looks like when we're being ready, when we're being found ready for the, for the coming of the king. And so in verse 14, when it says, uh, it, it opens up kind of generally. It's kind of like, oh, what are you, what's, what, what's going on here? It says, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey. That's what it reads in the NAS and the ESV. It says, for it will be like a man. And so, it, you know, if you're a little lost when you start verse 14 and you're trying to figure out where, what, what's the subject, you have to go back and you have to look at verse 1 of chapter 25 to see that Jesus is talking about the coming of the kingdom. Now, here in verse 15, we see that this master, he's giving talents to his servants. And when we talk about talents, you're probably thinking about, like, Talents, special skills that you have, like America's Got Talent or something like that. But we're not talking about talents as in special skills or gifts or whatever. We're talking about money, a form of currency. Uh, and, you know, we can definitely see that in this, in this context because it does talk about money. But we're not talking about just straight cash. We're talking about a measure of weight. Essentially, what a talent was um, was a piece of metal. And based off of the weight of that metal and, the and what the talent was composed of, so you could have gold, silver, bronze maybe, perhaps, uh, based on the value of what, what that coin was made of and how much it weighed, that's how you determine what the value was. So you have a lot of biblical scholars talking about, uh, well, you know, there's, there's a lot of money here. Uh, and, well, we don't really know. And it's not the point of the parable. God's not trying to tell us how much money is here. But the most important thing that we have to see here is that, the, that there are resources here that are being entrusted to these slaves to take care of, to do something with it. And so notice here that Matthew, when he, uh, as he's writing, uh, the, there are details here. He says that the master gave to, to each slave according, according to their ta uh, sorry, according to their abilities. The master distributes the talents according to the abilities of his slaves. He only gives as much as he knows that they can handle. And so we see in verse 16 to 18 the response of the slaves. We see the response of the slaves to their master. The slave who was given five talents went out immediately, traded with them, and doubled the amount of talents that he had. The slave who had two talents did the same thing. He went out immediately, doubling the amount of talents that he had. But in sharp contrast to those first two slaves, the third slave, the one who was only given one thing to take care of, what did he do? He went, he took his talent, dug a hole in the ground, stuck it in there, and walked away. That's all he did. And this is, this is going to be a more... We'll go into more detail with that later. But essentially, what we see here is that this third slave... He acted according to how he understood his master, how he saw his master. He didn't respect his master. He didn't care about his master. Therefore, he just buried the talent. So you might be wondering, how do these verses help us understand a faithfulness to worship? Well, you see, the response of these slaves to their master and the task that he entrusted to them illustrates the different responses of professing Christians to God 
and what he's entrusted with us. Your response to God on what you've been given here in this life is based off of your understanding of who he is. Your response to God is based off of your understanding of who he is. If you know who he is, if you value him, if you love him, you're going to do what pleases him. You're going to go to work. Consider, if you will, the example of Paul. Consider the example of Paul. In Acts 9, this is a pretty familiar passage to us. Paul, who was then known as Saul, uh, was not a Christian at the time. He was going on, he was on the road to Damascus and he was going to the city of Damascus in order to persecute Christians. He hated Christians. He was a staunch, um, he was a staunch Pharisee. And so he wanted to wipe out what he thought was a perversion of the, of, um, of the, of Judaism. And so he wanted to go wipe out Christians. And as he's on the road to Damascus, a light flashes. And the group that Paul's with, they all fall to the ground. They can't hear anything. They can't see anything. And Paul, uh, Saul hears a voice from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he responds, who are you, Lord? And the response back is, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then Jesus gives him some other instructions. And if you know the story of Paul, you know that basically after Paul experiences this vision on the, the road to Damascus, he's a changed man. His life is completely different. And so you have to be wondering, you have to be asking, what was so significant that caused Paul's life, life's trajectory to change so quickly, so drastically? Paul experiences a vision of the glorified Christ. And he, being a good Jew, understood the significance of the details around him. I'm not going to go there because we went super long last service, so I don't don't want to do that to you this time. But uh, I'll give you a summary of it. Paul understands that what he saw, the vision of the glorified Christ that he saw, was in fact what... It was, in fact, the same thing that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 10, verses 2 to 9. You can take a look at that later. But basically, Daniel's with a group of men. And suddenly, someone appears before him who has the appearance of lightning. His eyes were were flaming torches. His arms and feet were like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his voice was like a tumult. Now, if you're... If uh, you're listening to that and you're thinking, hey, that sounds awful familiar. Where is that from? And you're thinking, ah, maybe it's Revelation. You're right. It's in Revelation. And that's the description of Christ. So Daniel saw Christ in Daniel chapter 10. He saw the picture of of Christ in his glory. And Paul is experiencing that same vision. He's experiencing the vision of Christ, the glory of Christ. And... Because Paul recognizes that this is the same glory that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 10, his mind is drawn to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, 13 to 14, where you see the Son of Man presented before the Ancient of Days, that is God the Father, and he is there to receive his kingdom. And you have all the nations, every tribe, every tongue, bowing down to God the Father and worshiping him. And so Paul, driven by a vision of the glory of Christ, wanting to see his Savior glorified, wanting to see the scene of every single nation, every single person bowing down and worshiping God, because he's driven by that, he wants to see God glorified in everything. And so when you read the Pauline epistles and you kind of see how Paul is almost always trying to address something specifically. And you're just like, Paul, why don't you just calm down right now? Right? Why are you always fighting people? This is why. This is why. Paul understands the glory of Christ. He is captured by the glory of Christ. He wants to see his Savior magnified. And so when anything comes up and threatens the glory of God, Paul is fighting Paul is fighting because you cannot rob God of his glory. You cannot rob Christ of his glory. You have to uphold that. You need to see your Savior glorified. 
And so that's what's driving Paul. And if we are similarly enraptured by this understanding of the glory of Christ, if we want to see our God and Savior glorified, if we want to see him worshiped by all the nations and not just our little city, not just this particular church, then we have to have a commitment to worshiping God in all aspects of our lives. And not just when we go to church on Fridays or Sundays, but in everything. In everything, every single aspect of your life has to be oriented, has to be aimed towards the glory of Christ. This means that all of your ambitions, all of your desires, all of your priorities are aimed towards the glory of God. And if you want to be successful, you pursue God's glory with all that you are. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul is explaining the He's trying to balance out the realities of the earthly life that we as Christians live and the eternal life that awaits. And the amazing reality of being with God in heaven is his motivator. It is the motivator for all Christians to make it our ambition while we are here to desire to please God. Our desire to please God is based off of our desire to to see him glorified. And that's our ambition. That's the thing that drives us. That's the thing that pushes us. We want to see our God glorified. And that means if it is if it is indeed in everything, it means that in first uh, it means that it could be in, suf- in suffering. First Peter 4:16. It reminds us that even if we do suffer, let it not be because we deserve it because we've done something criminal, but let it be for the glory of God. Let it be because we're worshiping God, because we're honoring God. So we see that even when we suffer, let it be righteous suffering so that that suffering still points to the glory of God. Success in man's eyes focuses on our accomplishments and our status. But God has never been like that. He's never been like that. He's always looked at your heart. He's always looked to see what the object of your faith is. He wants to know where your affections are. When you think about it, that's, that's what the whole aim of the Old Testament was. In Deuteronomy 6, God, through Moses, is emphasizing the fact that the thing that gives us a relationship with God is the fact that we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our soul and strength. Right? That's what God has always looked at. Looked at. He's never cared necessarily about how well you can uh, check off the check boxes. He doesn't care about that. He cares about your heart. He cares about your heart. And we see a great example of that in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, you recognize as the hall of faith. Uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 32. You can just listen. You don't necessarily have to turn there. The author of Hebrews writes this. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, or David and Samuel and the of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. In all these having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. We see that these men and women of faith, they trusted God. They knew that he was going to bring about what he's promised. And because of that, they were faithful to him because they knew that he alone is worthy of worship because he's God. And that conviction drove them to work hard 
and to continue to work hard for God's glory, even though they did not see what they were hoping for. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine working hard for a promise and never seeing that promise actuated in your life? They did. They did. And they did so because they knew that what would ultimately come about was the ultimate good that God promised through his son. So they were driven by God's glory. They wanted to see him glorified. They wanted his plan to succeed. And so they worked hard for him and for his glory to the point where they were even martyred for the sake of God. And so we see biblical success is first and foremost all about how our thoughts and our actions drive us to pursue God's glory. It's all about our faithfulness in a worshipful attitude as we go about our daily lives. This is all that God's cared about. This is all that we ought to care about, but we can lose sight of that at times. We need to recover this. So that leads us to our second facet of faithfulness that explains biblical success, and that is a faithfulness in our giftedness. A faithfulness in our giftedness. Pick up back in Matthew 25, 19. And we see that now, after a long time, the master of these of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. He wanted to come. He wanted to see what they've done. And so, one by one, his slaves come up to him and they present their work to him. And as you can see, the first two slaves, they show him what they've done, and they're greeted with the same with the with the with the same response: "Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with the few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter." into the joy of your master. And I'm sure for many of you, this is a very familiar passage. This is something that we as Christians tell you, you want to hear from God when you get to heaven. When God calls you home, you want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter to the joy of your master. That's what we want. That's what we want to, to, that's how we want to orient our lives. We want to hear our Lord and our master, our savior say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. But you'll notice though, that this response is not the same for that third slave, that third slave who buried his talent. Sure. He didn't lose his master's money, but he didn't do anything with it either. And so as a, as a result, his master holds him responsible for it, for his, for his lack of action. And he condemns him for his laziness. Now, this master, he could have also responded to his slave's claim that said that he was a hard man who uh, reaped where he did not sow and gathered, gathered where, he didn't, where he scattered no seed. He could have responded to that, but he didn't. Instead, he's just like, okay, let's, let's work with your assumption. If I am this way, if I am, if I am the way that you say that I am, then you still should have done something. If you knew that I benefited from the work of others then you should have at least put my money in the bank so that I can get some interest income. It would have been better than just burying the money in the ground. And so these, the consequences of this slave's inaction are absolutely significant. You see in the text that his talent was taken away from him. It was given to the one who had, who had ten. And then, not only that, the slave was cast out into the outer darkness. Now you remember that this is a parable. This is an earthly story meant to explain a spiritual meaning. And the spiritual meaning is this is the coming of the kingdom and this is how we are supposed to act in response to the coming of the kingdom. Now, the master obviously respond, uh, um, represents Jesus Christ. And the slaves, repre- the first two slaves represent those who are believers, those who put their gifts into action for the glory of their king because they love him, because they're anticipating his coming. They don't know when he's coming back, so they go into action immediately. But this third slave, it represents a professing believer who doesn't really have a relationship with God. He might spend time at church, sure. He might even do things for the church from time to time. But overall, he doesn't really have a relationship with Jesus Christ, which is why when he goes to talk about his master's character, he completely misses what his, what his master's character is all about. That's why you have a mischaracterization of who the master is. And then also you see here this talk about outer darkness. And anytime you see outer darkness in the parables where there's weeping and gnashing of the teeth, we're talking about hell. We're talking about hell. 
And so what Jesus recognizes here, and he explains to us, is that there are people within the church who are Christians, and they are Christians indeed. However, there are also people who look like Christians. They seem to act like Christians, but they prove through their overall action and to their response to God that they are not Christians. They're not Christians. And so these are the ones who in Matthew 7 show up before God in the day of judgment and they say, Lord, Lord, do we not do all these things in your name? And he says to them, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's stunning. It's stunning to think that there are people among us who maybe have grown up at this church or maybe who have thought all their lives that they're Christians. Maybe you know the right things. Maybe you say the right things. Maybe you do everything, at least you think, for the purpose of the church. But yet, at the same time, these people cannot be Christians. That's a stunning statement. It's a stunning realization. So, carefully consider, are you in danger of being like this third slave? Will you be in danger of being cast out of the kingdom, even though you think yourself part of the kingdom? Are you essentially a practical atheist in your life, only giving credence to God when it's convenient or when it's necessary? Consider that. Now, it's not at all my intention to try and sow seeds of doubt into your lives. I'm not trying to undermine your faith or make you think that you're not saved if you genuinely are. But you need to ask yourselves these questions. You need to ask yourself these questions. Now, if you're struggling, that's fine. That's totally fine. Because we all struggle with our sins. Life change is slow. Life change is slow. I can assure you that I still struggle with my sin. That I'm still prideful. That I'm still impatient. I still struggle with trusting God. I can tell you that for sure. And I know that you... You all who are, are Christians, you struggle as well. It's okay. God's grace is strong enough. It's sufficient enough to bolster you, to help you get back up when you've fallen. Sanctification, the process of becoming more like Christ, is a lifelong journey. You don't become perfect until we get called home to be with the Lord in glory. But, the diagnostic questions that we need to ask is, have we genuinely, have we truly repented of our sins? Are we at least in process when it comes to growing more into Christ-likeness? Do you love Christ? Do you love his word? Do you love his people? These are things that we must ask ourselves. Because if we genuinely love Christ, his word, and his people. Praise the Lord. That's awesome. That's great. Those are very good indicators on whether you whether or not you're saved. And sure, there's gonna be there's gonna be bumps along the road. We're gonna you know, it's gonna feel like you're taking two steps forward and three steps back. It's gonna feel that way at times. You might feel lost, you might feel like you're not close to God at times. Everyone goes through that. We're going to struggle because we still live in sinful bodies. But as long as we get back up again by the grace of God and press on towards being like Christ, then we can have assurance that he who began the good work of salvation in our lives will be the one who's faithful to complete it. You can be assured of that. However, it doesn't mean that we don't have, we don't have works either. James 2, 17 to 26, it reminds us that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And, you know, I'm not at all advocating for a teaching that says that you are, you, that you earn your forgiveness and your righteous standard before God by doing works. I'm not, I'm not at all advocating for that. 
But I am saying, though, that if you are genuinely saved, a changed life, a life that desires to do good because of a love for Jesus is proof. It's evidence that you have been genuinely converted. It's your receipt, if you will. It's your proof of payment. The way that you live your life doesn't obviously have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be fully developed. But the evidence that you are growing has to be there. The evidence has to be there. So if you are here today, you're not a Christian. Or you maybe thought you were a Christian and you realize that you're not. You've been self-deceived. You are faced with a choice. Will you turn away from a life that is focused on you, your desires, your pleasure? A life that is either agnostic or in full-fledged denial of God? Will you turn away from that in order to receive forgiveness from God? To receive his love? To receive that forgiveness for every bad thing that you've ever done and ever will do? Or do you just not care? Would you prefer to live your life the way that you've always lived it up until the point, even to the point when, when you've walked into our doors this morning? You see, sure, God is a God of love. You've heard that paraded through the media a lot. Right? Christians believe that God is a God of love. But he's also a God of justice. He's a God of absolute righteousness. And so if, if that is true, then God does have to deal with sin. He does have to deal with evil. Every little act of rebellion that we've ever done earns us hell. We deserve that. But because God... Is gracious to us because he is merciful to us because he loves us he gave us the way out and not a way out that's incomplete but he gave us the perfect way out one that does satisfy his full justice and at the same time offers you mercy christ lived the perfect life that you could not live on your own he fulfilled god's law and requirement and he took in your place all the wrath that you deserve but not just you not just me he took the wrath of all people the wrath that all people deserved he took that all upon himself on the cross as our place in our place as our substitute he took that for us so that when we believe that he is the son of God who, who, di- who died for us and then rose again. And when we turn away completely from our sin and run towards Christ, we might be saved. He did that for you. He did that for you because he loves you. He doesn't want, he doesn't want you to go to hell. He wants you to be with him in heaven. He wants to adopt you who were once a rebel into his own family. Can you imagine that? He wants to adopt you into his family so that he can call you son, so that he can call you daughter. He wants you in his family. That's why he sent Christ. So if you want to receive that today, I urge you not to wait. I urge you to pray to ask God for forgiveness, to say sorry, essentially, to turn away from your sin and commit to living a life of righteousness because of a love for Christ. I urge you to do that. He's willing to do that today. As we consider now where we are, where we stand with the Lord. Now we got to try and figure out, okay, well, how does that then, does faithfulness with our giftedness come into play? How does it come into play? How does that relate to biblical success? Well, as we look at the two slaves who were commended by their master, we see that they were the ones who responded immediately to him. 
And they were able to apply their skill to double what was entrusted to them. Now, there isn't a direct one-to-one relationship in terms of what these talents represent in our lives because that wasn't Jesus' intention when he was telling this parable. He wanted to challenge the disciples to live expectantly for his second coming by making the most of the time that he's given them and the gifts that he's given them. God has uniquely given every single believer gifts with which they are to share with the rest of the church. We exist together as one body. We work together. We benefit one another. We strengthen one another. And so these gifts are for all of us. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, it tells us that God has given us people with various equipping, various teaching gifts, so that the whole body can be strengthened, building itself up together in love. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 11 reminds us that there are many gifts, but the same Spirit who gives these gifts. And if you skip down to verse 28 of that same chapter, you see an elaboration on more of these gifts, what these gifts entail. Romans 12, 6 to 8 explains that these gifts differ according to the grace that God has given to each person. Now, you see these, these passages uh, of the spiritual gift list, and you can go through it yourself. Um, we don't have time for that this morning. But what, you can, what we can see, though, as, as we look at these gifts, is that there is a similarity to our parable in that we are each given different gifts according to, as it says in Romans twelve six, the grace given to us. And that does mean that some gifts are maybe a little more prominent than others, some a little, little more front and center than others. But that doesn't mean that these gifts that are more front and center are any more important than the ones that are not front and center. And besides, regardless of what kind of gift you have, we're expected to have the same attitude that these first two slaves in our parable had. We are to work immediately, knowing that our master could come at any time. And we are to work because we love our master. We want to see him glorified. We don't know when he's coming back, but we don't want to be caught sleeping on the job. We want, to be use- we want to be found useful when he returns. This is not about us. It never has been about us. It's always been about God. And now, so some of you might be thinking, well, I know that everyone has a spiritual gift and that we need to use them to benefit the body, but how do I find out what mine are? Now, what I'm about to say to you might sound a little mean, might sound a little judgmental, but hang in there with me, Okay. You do not find out what your spiritual gifts are because you took some tests online and you filled out your little personality things and what you, what you, what you think you are and you know, process this through the computer. And then, boom, here are your spiritual gifts. This is what you need to be doing. That's not how you find out what your spiritual gifts are. And the reason why I know that is because, well, having taken some of those tests, I know how I can manipulate the answers, right? If I want to be a pastor, well, anything that deals with people care or teaching God's word, those are the, those are the marks that I check off, right? So obviously I can do that, right? You can, you can tell me, uh, well, just take this test honestly. And it's like, well, I want to be a pastor. So boom, 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 boom. Oh, hey, look, surprise, I'm a pastor, right? You can manipulate these tests to, to say what you want them to say. Now, I understand the intention behind these tests. The people who have designed these tests, they want to try and help mobilize the body of Christ. They want to help us understand what we're gifted at so that we can actually be vital members of the body, actively contributing to the day-in, day-out life of this church. That's great. That is great. So I don't want to, and that's why I said this might sound a little mean and judgmental. I don't want to throw them completely under the bus, just a little bit. Um, The flaw that is here is that this is a man-made test. It's a man-made test trying to supply biblical principle and to shoot it through a matrix that's supposed to match up with the spiritual gifts and tell you who, who you're supposed to be. But that's, that's, it can be helpful in some senses, but it's not always helpful in giving you everything. We also, we, just, we don't want to be a church that's filled with people who have just specific uh, specializations. We don't want to be a church that's just filled with uh, bench role players, if you will. We want every single member being a vital part of this body. We work together at all times to accomplish goals. We're not just calling up someone just because we need a three-point shooter. 
Right? We want everyone to be working together for the glory of God, to build up one another. And so how do we find out what, how God has gifted us? Well, first of all, just be willing to serve. Be willing to serve. Be willing to be used for God. Be willing to do whatever God wants you to do. And that also means that you have to be willing to explore. There might be some things that you've never even thought about doing. Maybe you don't even think that you'll like it, but when you try it, maybe you will. Some gifts, they just come naturally to people. And other gifts, they just need to be cultivated. Gifts of of administration, yeah, sometimes those are the more uh, natural things. You take people who like to be super organized, and you're just like, yeah, of course, why don't don't you be uh, someone who serves in administration? But sometimes you just have to learn at administration, and then you realize as you learn it, that you're actually pretty good at it, right? Those, that's one of the gifts that you can cultivate. You know, teaching is another one of those things. You might, you know, even if you're gifted at teaching, you still need to improve. You still need to improve. I'm sure some of you will probably even tell me, yeah, that's right, you need to improve. And, <laughs> and you know what, you're right. You're right, I do. Sometimes you need to, to just try things and be okay with failure. Because you can get back up again. Right? Remember, failure isn't necessarily a bad thing. God can teach you just as much in failure as he can in success. Think about Paul on the road to Troas in Acts 16. You know, you, we would never call Paul unsuccessful. I mean, he planted all these churches and he made all these disciples. We would never call Paul unsuccessful. But when we see him in Acts 16, he's coming off a string of successes. And then all of a sudden, he's blocked. Every single which way he wants to go in Asia, he just can't do it. The Spirit's not allowing him to do it. Why? We don't know. But we know that God is not allowing for him to do whatever he wants to do in terms of missions. And so by the time Paul eventually find, uh, by the time Paul eventually finds out what God wants him to do, he's traveled 500 plus mountain miles, and he ends up at the city of Troas. 500 plus mountain miles. You have to deal with inclines, inclement weather, curves along the road. Yet you see that Paul never complained. He trusted the Lord. He allowed for the Lord to lead him where he wanted him to go. Because Paul knew that God knew what he was doing. And he trusted that. And so in a similar way, we, when we have things that we're afraid to do, we can trust God in that. We might experience a string of failures, but that's okay. We can trust that God is trying to teach us something. We, don't, we might not know what until it actually hits us in the face, but God's trying to teach us something. You know, and, and even if you do know what your spiritual gifts are, it doesn't mean that you can only serve in the particular area where you're strong in. Right? We found out yesterday in our ministry leaders meeting that we have a ton of high school staff. Essentially, it's a one-to-one ratio, if not more, if not two-to-one. Two to um, and so if you are here at this church and you just became a member, you want to serve in high school, we probably don't need you there. Right? We probably don't need you there. But... You can serve elsewhere in this church. And, you know, I also want to say that it's, it's important for us to be careful because if we're, if we're not careful and we say that we have to serve in the particular roles that we feel that we're strong in, it can be a form of selfish ambition. It's counting yourself, your rights, and your abilities, your giftedness as more important than God. No, God, you got it wrong. I have to be in that ministry because that's what I'm gifted in. No, no, you don't. We're not all necessary. We're not all necessary. God can do do his work in his kingdom and in his church without us. So you're not indispensable. I'm not indispensable. Pastor Henry's not indispensable. God can glorify himself through all of us. So we can't have this I, this attitude where I am so important that I have to be here. Be careful of selfish ambition. <clears throat> now, there are other spiritual gifts as well that are not listed in those three in, in those three passages. There are other gifts that we can use that God has given us in order to glorify him. 
And for example, in the Old Testament, when God commissions the building of the Ark of the Covenant, when he commissions the building of the tabernacle and of the temple, he provides skilled workers in order to do all those things. Woodworkers, uh, precious metal workers, seamstresses, everything. He provides these people with special skills to glorify him. Think about, um, think about David. David was a shepherd boy, right? Pretty good with a slingshot, but I don't think they had slingshot leagues back then, so you can't do anything with that. But he was super gifted in music. And so even though he was a shepherd boy, God used David by putting him in Saul's court to help comfort Saul during those times when Saul was just going crazy. And God used David in that. Right? So you can have all these different gifts that aren't necessarily the spiritual gifts, but they're still gifts that God gives to benefit the church. <clears throat> and because we have individuals within the church who have different skills, different passions, the church then has multiple outlets by which we can glorify God. You've heard it said that you don't need to go to another country to be a missionary, and that's absolutely true. That is absolutely true. The way that you go about your work the way that you handle adversity, the way that you act with integrity when no one else is, the way that you respond with love and kindness to someone who is frankly unlovable, all of that is a statement about the God that you love and the God that you follow. We can forgive those who might do things that are unforgivable because God in Christ has forgiven us. And we are called to do the same, Ephesians 4.32. The way that we do, the, the way that we go about our lives, it demonstrates to the world what we believe to be true about God. We proclaim the gospel, even if it's in a subtle way, through our lives. Are you a skilled business person whose skill is, frankly, just to make a lot of money? Great. Praise the Lord. Glad you can make a lot of money. Earn money for the glory of God, though. Not for yourself. For the glory of God. Earn it so that you can be a blessing to the church. Earn it so that you can support missionaries. Earn it so that you can open up your home to your unbelieving co-workers. And now that they're in your house, at your dining table, you get to control the, the conversation. Win them over with your hospitality. Are you a lawyer? Practice law to the glory of God. Stand for what is right. Are you a teacher? Teachers, educate and influence the, kid that, the kids that God has entrusted to your care to the glory of God. Even if you're not allowed to share the gospel with them outrightly, redeem that. Redeem that. Influence them as best you can for the gospel so that when you are away from school, you can be a voice of the gospel to them. Medical professionals, use your skills or even your workplace as a place where you can honor God. Retirees, use your, your former skills. Use your free time to the glory of God. Parents, take every opportunity that you can in order to raise your children up in the way of the Lord so that he might be glorified. Everything that we do, everything that we can possibly dream of in our lives, it can all be redeemed for the glory of God, right? We see in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians three twenty three: whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of your inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Now, you might need to do a heart check. You might need to get godly individuals in your, lives, in your life to uh, evaluate you to make sure that you indeed are trying to glorify God in your actions. But if you have this godly input and you do realize that your goals are aimed towards glorifying God, then feel free to grow in your, in your industry, to advance your skills so that you can glorify God. When your ambitions push Christ front and center, ambitions cease to be the selfish ambition that Paul speaks out against in Philippians 2. But it is godly ambition that drives you to do great things for the Lord. With your vocation, with your day-to-day -day life, everything needs to be oriented to the glory of our God. 
For some of you, you might even th- be thinking, do I want to take on more ministry responsibility here at this church? I would encourage you, if you feel like the Lord is leading you in that way, to do so. Sure, it's hard. Sure, there's definitely responsibility. And you are held accountable to the Lord for that. But if you're driven by, a glor- by, by the glory of God, if you want to glorify him, and you feel like you, you can do that by being a teacher, by being a deacon, by maybe even being an elder for some of you, then that is what you need to strive for. That's what you need to push yourself towards as long as it's all for God and his glory. That's why you need a heart check, right? Because you can't trust yourself. An author that I read said this, because Christ's righteousness has been transferred to me, all the time and energy I once squandered trying to be liked or praised or to achieve something to validate my existence can now be redirected towards doing things for God's glory. I no longer live for approval. I live from approval. That's a freeing statement, isn't it? I no longer live for approval. I live from approval. Because Christ's righteousness has been granted to me, I'm redeemed. That my, my value is found in Christ. I don't need to work to gain approval from men because it doesn't matter. What matters is the approval of Christ and how he views me. The gospel allows us to transform our aspirations, our ambitions, so that it is all about glorifying our Savior. It allows for us to become in faith what God has already declared you to be. Another author writes this. If our ambitions are pushing God and his glory forward, then they cannot be small. Ambitions for self can be quite modest. Ambitions for God, however, if they are worthy, can never be modest. There is something inherently inappropriate about cherishing small ambitions for God. How can we ever be content that he should acquire just a little more honor in the world? No. Once we are clear that God is king, then we long to see him crowned with glory and honor and accorded his true place, which is the supreme place. We become ambitious for the spread of his kingdom and righteousness everywhere. Because the gospel has redeemed Christians and thus redeemed our ambitions, we can strive with all of our might, with all of our strength, with all of our giftedness to bring great glory to God. We can recover that. We can push towards that. We want to glorify God with all that we have because what we have is not our own anyway. And so if we want to give God great glory, we push with all that we have, with all that we've been entrusted with, to glorify him in everything. This morning, we looked at how biblical success is defined by faithfulness and how that faithfulness is characterized by a faithfulness to worship God and to use our giftedness well. If God defines biblical success as faithfulness, the question that we as a church must ask ourselves is how are we together going to strive to make it our goal to be a faithful church? How can we encourage each other in faithfulness? How can we cultivate it? Not only that, but we also have to be committed not to allow for worldly standards of success to be the standards by which we judge our own success. There are some aspects of business that do kind of come over into the church, right? We do want to be excellent in everything that we do because we want to honor God in everything that we do. So there is some carryover. We can't deny that. But have we, even in our, in our adamance that we are not a business, by accident, by accident, mind you, gone too far? And have treated the church like a business, have operated the church like a business. We need to ask ourselves that. We have to be mindful of that. We have to be careful of that. And personally, you know, if, if we remember who we are in Christ and what he has saved us to be, let us then be committed, dedicated, driven to redeem all of our gifts for the glory of God. Let us be, let us become who God has already declared us to be in Christ and strive to make him front and center in everything. Now I pray 
that as we strive together as a church and as individuals to be biblically successful, to sanctify what is common for the glory of God, that we would do so in a way that brings God maximum glory for the time that's been allotted to us in this life. May each of us here, as we enter into the presence of our master, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Our God, our Father, we're thankful that you've redeemed us, that you have saved us, that you have even redeemed our ambitions so that we can push forward to glorify you when we would have at one time just wanted to glorify ourselves. Help us to strive to live lives that desire first and foremost, to glorify you. We know that we cannot do this perfectly. We know that we fail in this often. But we pray that you would give us an extra measure of grace, that you would help us to be committed to being about what you're about. Help us to love you with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, all of our strength, so that we can be biblically successful, that we can be faithful to you. Thank you for your grace to us. It's your sons that we pray. Amen.